Thank you for joining us today on All About the Green, IIF's podcast on all things sustainable finance. I'm your host today, Greer Mizels, and I'm joined by Mike Ferguson of S&P Global Ratings, one of our big sponsors here at our annual membership meeting. And we're thrilled to talk to him today about ESG. This has been one of the major topics of conversation throughout the last four days here at the annual membership meeting. It's really dominated almost every discussion. So at the outset, I'd just like to ask you, Mike, you know, what kind of got you into the world of ESG? I think earlier in your career, you were a credit analyst in S&P's infrastructure practice, covering unregulated power, utilities, midstream energy, project finance. So you know, is this a big departure for you, or was this a sort of natural transition? Well, I think one of the interesting things about working at S&P Ratings is that we're often, as credit ratings analysts, encouraged to work on research ideas. One of my research ideas was to work on environmental risk several years ago when I started working on project financings and power plants. And that evolved over time. Obviously, the need to understand that better in the market grew and grew and grew, and the role opened up in our sustainable finance practice. I have a political science and finance background from college, and I thought this was a good intersection of the two. Obviously, it's increasingly relevant, and it's something that really takes advantage of the credit analysis that we do and brings it to a different audience, I think. I understand that you recently launched a new ESG evaluation and that it's kind of comprised of two main components, a company's ESG profile and its preparedness. What is the difference between the profile and the preparedness? And then more specifically, how do you measure actual preparedness? It's a good question. I'd say that the profile piece of it is intended to be relatively near-term in nature. In order to understand the profile, what we do effectively is look at baseline risk levels in the industry and the country in which the company we're dealing with operates. We also look at their company-specific data. So in other words, how do they fare against their peers? It looks at the recent history. Obviously, a lot of ESG data are historical. It looks at near-term trends, and it looks at policies and procedures. So when we look at the observable, quantifiable risks that a company faces with regards to environmental, social, and governance factors, that's what we're scoring out. However, the preparedness piece of it is a bit more qualitative than that. So the preparedness piece of it is intended to be longer-term in nature. How do we formulate that view? How do we get a feel for how well the company is prepared for disruption and for emerging risks and strategic risks? How do they capitalize on opportunities longer term? Well, the data alone don't tell you that. We actually have to sit down with the management team and understand not just what risks they're facing right now, but get a feel for how it is they identify risk and opportunity more holistically. How do they measure that? How do they then plan to respond to those risks that they get larger and larger over time? And is there an opportunity for the company to positively differentiate themselves? As a ratings agency, we're historically very focused on risk. And certainly that's a big piece of ESG. But there's also a lot of opportunity in it too. And I think companies that are very well prepared will be able to positively differentiate themselves from their peers over time. Our preparedness tool is intended to assess just that. And so then with the preparedness piece, ostensibly you could have two different companies in the very same industry, but they would get different scorings or different rankings best based on their preparedness levels? That's certainly a possibility. You can imagine two companies in the utility space, for instance, they might have the same metrics and same policies and procedures right now, but one of them, which shows a very high level preparedness, could actually score very well over time, and one that doesn't show high level preparedness. Maybe they're not ready for climate change, or they're not thinking about how their workforce is going to transform over time. Instead of having points added to their score, they might actually have points taken away from their score as a result of this kind of weaker level of preparedness. think companies are really interested in getting these ESG evaluations? And what do you think could be done to encourage others to participate? I think part of the value we're trying to bring with this is that 
ESG data points in and of themselves, if you just take them at face value, they, they tell you one piece of the story. They tell you something from a very high level and they can be selective in certain cases. I think what we try to look at is that data as being the first chapter of the story. There's a lot more that goes on to that. There are oftentimes narratives that companies have to tell, and certainly we look at everything through the lens of financial materiality, but we're doing it in such a way that's thoughtful, we think, that's qualitative in nature, and that is very forward-looking. I think that that's a differentiator. If you think of ESG as being a story, you have a lot of companies that are kind of in the early phases of right now but want to transform over time. We want to understand that transformation. We think that that's just as valuable as the data points that we'd be looking at, which are historical in nature sometimes. And are you focused on any specific industries or how many of these ESG evaluations have you done thus far? Sure. So I would say to your first question, we don't have an industry focus per se right now. This is open to any corporate and soon will be for financial services companies as well. However, one interesting trend that we've seen is actually that we've gotten a lot of interest in those industries that have a high level of environmental risk or a high level of social risk. And that's kind of odd because all things being equal, those companies would actually score worse. Their baseline is going to be a bit lower just by virtue of what they do. But I think it speaks to the fact that a lot of these companies want to show the evidence that they are in some ways better than their peers. They want to show that they shouldn't be painted with the same brush as other peers in the same industry who maybe aren't as responsible, who aren't as forward looking. And so you do see clusters in the utility space and the consumer goods space and metals and mining even. You know, those are companies that we think of as being pretty heavily afflicted by ESG risks. And nonetheless, we're seeing a lot of them come in and a lot of them engaging a lot with us. I think that's the important thing is that they are actually sitting down and showing a high level of transparency. It's not just our score. I think in general, showing a high level of transparency on ESG is positively received by the market because it eliminates the question about whether there's selective disclosure of information or strategies. Talk about ESG, there's obviously three different letters, the E, the S, and the G. When you're considering those sorts of risks, are they all weighted equally? And if not, why not? So we sort of start with the assumption that they're weighted 30, 30, 40, with the G being 40 because we think that governance captures environmental and social risk management as well as just general governance. And then within each of those, we have four separate factors, and those are all weighted equally. But there's an inherent challenge in that. And I think that one of the things that we want to bring out and we're doing this over time, is emphasizing the materiality of different factors for different industries. Now, when we do one of these evaluations, we bring our best, our most senior credit analysts to the table because they understand the industries really well. And a utilities analyst knows better than I do what the relative level of risk for greenhouse gas emissions versus water use might be and what the relative level of risk of safety management versus community engagement might be. That's the sort of story that our analysts try to tell. So over time, we're trying to show the materiality, show different weightings for companies as it's becoming more and more apparent through empirical data that these factors are more and more relevant. The question around this is financial materiality. It's what investors want to know about. We want that to come out in the reports that we produce. Talking about materiality, do you think that there are ESG-related risks that have crossed that sort of materiality threshold, or is it just kind of a piece of a broader puzzle that now when you look at things over time, you're seeing things influenced by ESG, but your ratings themselves aren't really being affected or downgraded or upgraded based solely on the ESG performance? Sure. It's, it's a good question. So we, we do credit ratings and obviously we're S&P and we have captured ESG in our credit ratings pretty much as long as we've been doing credit ratings. And we've recently done look back studies that have pointed to the impact of ESG factors on credit ratings. To give you an example, in our corporate rating space over a recent two-year period, we had about 9,000 total ratings actions. 
about 1,300 of them mentioned ESG risks in the rationale for the ratings action. So about 15% discussed it as either a primary driver or another consideration that was used in that ratings action. So certainly it has been material to credit quality in some cases, more so in environmental than in social and governance. But what I would say, and this is to the point I was making earlier about opportunity, it's not all negative. I think in the social space, it is more negative, but in the environmental side, it's split more evenly down the middle. I think what it shows you is that in response to changing regulations, some companies are actually able to positively adapt to that too, not just bear the consequences of it. So it has been material. And one would imagine that with the, an advancing energy transition throughout the globe, with heightened risks around climate change, uh, with greater attention paid to the company's operations on things like social media, that all creates a need for more risk management. And it does kind of emphasize that ESG risks could become more acute to credit quality over time. A lot of different global disclosure practices around the world, one of which is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, or what we call TCFD. How do your evaluations align with some of those different disclosure practices? Are you getting any of your data from TCFD disclosures that a company has done? Or are they kind of running in tandem and, and not really affecting one or the other? Sure. So one of the things that we actually can opine on is the company's level of alignment with TCFD specifically. That is one taxonomy that we use, one set of reporting recommendations that we use in order to inform our opinions on what sort of is necessary, what's required information. But it's not the only one. We look at other taxonomies as well. I think we draw on pieces of all of them, kind of understanding that a lot of them have different goals, different aims, and ours is intended to tell a different story. I'd say that the preparedness piece of what we do is not something that really falls under any of the taxonomies that, you know, that we work with regularly. It's something that's unique to us. So I think we try to blend a lot of the information that's out there from a thought leadership perspective, leverage a lot of the work that's already been done to create something that tells the story that S&P thinks is relevant, the one of financial materiality. Now, to the extent that we can interface with the the, the people people who put together those taxonomies, it's always a very useful conversation. It does help inform our thinking to a great degree. Now, talking about some of those opportunities, the issue of greenwashing is huge. Um, and you know, do you see the ESG evaluation as maybe helping to address some of the problems of greenwashing if you're able to more accurately evaluate what a different company's ESG practices are? Do you think that that would help alleviate some of the you know, well, is it really green? Is it not really green? Well, I, I certainly think that we have the potential to do that. Our ESG evaluation is intended to be a holistic analysis. So we're, we're not too dogmatic about how we just rely on governance and transparency measures, as is the criticism surrounding greenwashing that that be, takes preeminence over environmental impact. We do consider environmental impact both in our ESG evaluation and also in our green evaluation, which is a separate tool that focuses more on issuances while the ESG evaluation focuses on issuers. To be sure, the goal of what we do, not just the green evaluation or the ESG evaluation, the goal of S&P in general is to provide transparency. A big piece of overcoming greenwashing is providing more transparency into what environmental impact is. To the extent that we can do that through our evaluations, we, we certainly try to, and we think we have the environmental data to back that up. And you know, I guess one final final question is if you wanted people to come away from this podcast understanding one thing about S&P's thinking on ESG issues, what would it be? You know, what's your 30-second elevator pitch? 
Well, I think we acknowledge, like everyone else does, that the field of ESG analysis is rapidly evolving. I think there's more and more information and data produced every day, and we're trying to stay on top of it as best we can. But we do so through the prism of, of this, this great industry knowledge that our credit analysts bring to the table. We have people who are very senior, who've been around the industries, who can speak to the credibility of management teams. And most importantly, they do so on a forward-looking basis. That's important. I think that the world of ESG has evolved a lot and is going to continue to evolve. We need to be sensitive to the fact that whatever the data points say right now, those could transform over time. And we want to make sure that we at least have a methodology that can speak to how that might happen and keep it forward looking, but still keep it rooted in this concept of financial materiality. Because at the end of the day, that's what investors have sought from us in, in credit ratings. And I think it's what we hope to provide to the market with our ESG evaluation as well. Great. Well, thank you so much, Mike. This has been really illuminating. S&P is obviously one of the thought leaders in this area. And the All About the Green podcast is a way to disseminate that thought leadership to the rest of our membership. So thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. 